Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from fertility expert Dr. Vinay Ganala. Dr. Ganala specializes in all aspects of reproductive medicine, offering patients a full range of fertility services, including ovulation induction, egg freezing for fertility preservation, oocyte donation, and IVF with and without pre-implantation genetic testing. His clinical expertise extends to numerous reproductive challenges such as amenorrhea, PCOS, recurrent pregnancy loss, endometriosis, and he is a proud supporter of LGBTQ reproductive rights. In addition, he is a skilled, minimally invasive surgeon for operative hysteroscopy and advanced laparoscopy. Even if you're not struggling with fertility, you likely know someone who has or currently is. I learned a ton from Dr. Ganala and now have an entirely different perspective on infertility as well as the treatments available. I know you're going to learn so much from him as well. Real quick, I want to share an Apple podcast review with you. LCSWDREA17 left five stars and wrote, So relatable, it's sustainable. I've delved into the health world for several years now, initially because I wanted to get healthy, later because my health depended on it. I've listened to likely hundreds of podcasts on health and wellness, and the reason I keep coming back to this podcast is because of Brooke's emphasis again and again on being kind to yourself and your body. She encourages her listeners to listen to the cues of their body and do what works for them, what is sustainable for them. I've tried crazy protocols that just aren't sustainable, and they work. But hearing Brooke's helpful tips remind me that I don't have to be militant or neurotic about my health. So grateful for her love of research that makes all the content relatable and enjoyable. Highly recommend. Wow. So, so grateful for you and that kind, thoughtful review. Truly, each and every Apple Podcast review means the absolute world to me which is why I created a special link to make it easier for you. I don't know why it can be very tricky to leave an Apple podcast review. You'd think that Apple would have figured this out by now, but it can be kind of difficult. So you can visit thehealthinvestment.com slash review to easily follow a three-step process to leave one. Thank you so much in advance. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Ganala. Enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Ganala. Thank you so much for being here today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so excited to hear your take on everything fertility related. Thanks so much for having me. So can you share with everyone your story, your background, how you became a fertility specialist to begin with? Yeah. So um, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and then went to medical school at University of Arizona in Tucson. And then um, to become a fertility specialist, first you have to do a general residency in OBGYN or obstetrics and gynecology for four years, which I did um, in New York City um, at Weill Cornell. And then you uh, specialize in a fellowship called um, reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And that's three years. And I also did that um, at while Cornell um, and finished that in July 2018 and then um, was kind of in a blessed situation where my mother is also a a fertility specialist and she has her own practice that she started in 1980 in Phoenix. So I came back home and and joined her and that's where I work right now. Oh, interesting. So did you kind of always know you wanted to be a fertility specialist because your mom had done that or did you toy with other options? 
Yeah, very good question. I think I was always, I was kind of late to the whole medicine track and everything. Um, but, you know, the more that I think about it, I think it was probably kind of engraved in me or, or building in me inherently without me knowing. Um, so once I kind of decided on a path of medicine, um, I kind of fell in love with many aspects of, of women's health. Um, and, you know, what I remember growing up was, you know, my mom kind of meeting patients randomly at restaurants or the park or wherever, and just how much fulfillment she had in, in helping them create their family and how much kind of gratitude and, and uh, meaning that she gave those patients um, and helping them start a family or expand their family. And so I think that was probably the thing that I remembered the most without even really thinking about it. And then once we got into kind of the medical aspect of it, I fell in love with kind of the clinical and surgical side of fertility. And, and from there, it was, it was kind of a given. Hmm, that's so interesting. So what is the definition? Do you define it as fertility or infertility? I mean, or maybe both? How do you define both, I would say? Both are both actually, interestingly, kind of require the same workup um, and, and diagnostic tests. Um, infertility basically just means couples are having trouble conceiving in nature. Um, uh, and so that definition is the inability to conceive um, and a couple having regular intercourse um, after a year. Hmm. Okay. And then so the infertility is just the opposite. And fertility <laughs> is, is, is kind of the opposite. But yeah, once again, I think, you know, obviously there's now patients that just want to know about their fertility. And, and that's great to even just know either before they're try, trying or, you know, maybe not even waiting a year, which is also recommended in, in some cases. Um, so you would still do that kind of same testing. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, you mentioned a year, but I know people who have gone much sooner than that. So do you generally recommend, I mean, when do you recommend that somebody go see a fertility specialist? Do you recommend waiting a year or going sooner? You know, I think it's never, it, it maybe our our perspective and my perspective is a little biased because I often see couples waiting too long and um, there are still limitations with all of our fertility treatment where that specific couple's prognosis would have been vastly improved had they only waited, had they waited a shorter time and came to see one, uh, a fertility specialist three or four years or whenever, whatever time earlier. So, but you know, what I would say is, um, and what's recommended by the College of OBGYN is, um, in a rate, you know, not conceiving after a year in a woman less than 35, um, six months in a woman 35 to 40. Um, and after 40, um, that it's even recommended just to get an evaluation right away. Okay. So what exactly happens with a woman's fertility as they get older? Um, so two major things that, you know, unfortunately, human reproduction is pretty inefficient. Um, and the, the biological clock is, is a little bit more sensitive on the side of a, a female than it is on a male. Um, both have effects as they age, but definitely much more sensitive on the side of a female. And so part of, part of that is but, uh, two things. So one is egg number and the other is egg quality. Um, you know, as opposed to males who continue to produce sperm throughout their reproductive life, um, women are born and endowed with a certain egg count. Um, actually, the highest a woman's egg count is when she's only 20 weeks in her mom's belly. Um, and it only decreases from there. So um, the egg count is something that we are continuously losing eggs. Um, and women start to lose eggs a little bit more quickly at kind of in their upper 30s, and then much more quickly after 40. So that's part of the kind of age-related decline in fertility. And the other important part is egg quality. And so um, there's always a certain percentage of eggs that are abnormal in, in any woman in her teenage 20, in her 20s and early 30s. And that's about 30% of eggs are abnormal, but it increases as a woman gets older. And so at the age of 37, about 50% of a woman's eggs are abnormal. And after 40, uh, a woman's egg, the percentage is about 75. And by 44, it's about 85 to 90%. So those two factors, egg number and egg quality, are, are why there are different recommendations on also seeing a specialist earlier when they are older. Okay. And then what about for men? What what is their age kind of range in terms of yeah. being less fertile? It's, it's, it's much later, right? It's much later. So what has been shown is that there's um, kind of age-related decreases, subtle decreases um, in um, kind of sperm motility and concentration. Um, uh, so the number of sperm and how well they're swimming. Um, and we don't really generally start to see that until around age 50, 55. Hmm. Wow. So 
this is kind of, I don't know if this is a weird question or not, but <laughs> I just came up with it. There's no weird questions, trust me, in my field. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> but I was wondering, does the birth control pill have any indication on fertility for women? It, so are you ter- in, in terms of kind of saving eggs because you're not Yeah. It's a very good question. And actually, uh, one of the common myths is that obviously birth control prevents or, or works as, as a, a contraception in many different ways, but one of them is by not ovulating an egg each month. But however, the, the loss of a woman's eggs have much to do, more to do with kind of just the general attrition and loss of those eggs that have nothing to do with your hormones. Um, so a woman kind of continues to lose eggs at the same rate, whether she's on birth control or whether she's not. So therefore, a woman that is on birth control kind of throughout the majority of her reproductive life for whatever reasons, she will still undergo menopause at her natural time that she would, whether she was not on the pills or, or on them. So it's not like you're saving. I think some people think, um, and, and rightfully so, that maybe you're saving eggs for then that you can use later when you're not on birth control pill, but it, it unfortunately doesn't work that way. Hmm. Okay. Would you say that most OBGYNs know what you know when it comes to fertility, or do you think it's really your specialty? I mean, obviously you know more, but I feel like I've gotten a lot of conflicting information from OBGYNs over the years. You know, I think it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. It really is. I mean, obviously OBGYNs have to go through four years of obstetrics and gynecology residency. And part of that includes some, um, uh, some emphasis on fertility. So I think it's definitely in anybody a great place to start. Um, and they have a great, you know, basic foundation. And I think the important part of OBGYNs is to, they can also start, you know, the basic workup um, and then, but they should have the knowledge, which most of them largely do, um, of when things are a little bit out of their control or they need a little bit more testing. And that's when that referral would be placed to, to a fertility specialist. Um, there's also naturally kind of changes in healthcare now over the last kind of several years where, you know, traditionally you would go to your primary care doctor, your internist, or your general OBGYN and there be referred to a specialist. But now people kind of go straight to their orthopedic hand specialist when they have a problem, you know? So it, um, mm-hmm. I think that has bypassed a little bit of, of the, the primary care role, but definitely they are, you know, an, an important, um, important role in managing fertility. And then obviously when we get them pregnant, we, we count on them for the rest of their, um, antepartum and delivery and OB care. Right. So if a woman has a miscarriage, does that have any connection to fertility? Miscarriages do. Um, and, you know, miscarriages are um, an, an unfortunate reality that are just very common and probably more common than, than more people think. Um, uh, doesn't make it any easier. It's, it's absolutely the worst part of my job to, to, you know, tell a patient congratulations that we're pregnant, but we're still early. And then either weeks or a few, um, you know, a month later that, you know, the baby's heartbeat stops and, and it's, it's just, it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing, but they are very common. Um, uh, and so miscarriages are about 15 to 20% of all pregnancies um, and even early pregnancy losses that sometimes go unnoticed in nature because a woman only kind of her period changes by five days or seven days, they don't really even think that they're pregnant. Um, but those are what are what are called chemical pregnancies where um, there is a pregnancy, but you just end up kind of having a little bit of a later period. So if you kind of combine both miscarriages with these early pregnancy losses, that can be up to about 30 to 40% of all conceptions, even in women that are younger. Um, but as a woman gets older, because of their decrease in egg quality, miscarriages can now be up to about 50% of, of women in uh, their upper 30s and 40s. Hmm. So then if you're having miscarriages, then you're always having trouble with fertility or are not all of them connected to that? Um, not yeah, not always. And so generally you don't start a, a workup for, which is a separate workup of kind of recurrent miscarriages, unless a woman has had more than one. Definitely we, I would say between two to three is when you would now start thinking that maybe there's something else wrong. Um, and, and generally the first miscarriage that a woman has, I actually treat it as more of an optimistic sign. Um, and, and a positive, because that tells me that obviously the woman is releasing an egg, that egg is being picked up by the fallopian tube, 
the sperm of that couple, of, of that husband, is able to swim into the tube and fertilize the egg, and the uterus is able to take that embryo, and the embryo is allowed to stick. Um, and the most common causes of miscarriage have nothing to do with what the couple is doing, but just that the the chromosomes didn't align perfectly. And that's a very common event. So given it's so common, um, if it happens only once and maybe even twice in a good prognosis patient, then it's actually kind of a reassuring thing. But, you know, once it starts to happen a little bit more frequently, then you want to start looking at other things that could be causing that, um, the, the increased kind of chances of miscarriages. So, okay. So what are some of the other common causes of miscarriages? Do you Sometimes I hear, oh, nobody knows what causes them. And then some people say that they do kind of have an idea. Do you, do you know? Right. So the most common causes of miscarriages are due to what we call embryo aneuploidy, or basically where the embryo was chromosomally abnormal. Um, the most common one that we know about um, in nature is is trisomy 21, or also known as Down syndrome. Um, but that is one of the few, basically handful of these chromosomal mismatches that can actually survive in nature. So it can implant, grow, and actually lead to a baby with, with kind of long-term deficits. Um, the large majority of these mismatches, which happen once again, very frequently in nature, like 98% of them, nature just protects ourselves. So that is either we don't even get pregnant that month, or we have one of these early pregnancy losses, um, like either a first trimester miscarriage or even a chemical pregnancy loss that we may not that may even go unnoticed in, in nature. Mm, but then once we've had kind of more than, like I said, two or three, then you would start thinking of some other factors. So there could be kind of problem. The most common problems would be one would be problems of the uterus. So if there was kind of a big kind of fibroid in the cavity or um, an endometrial polyp inside the cavity, so any kind of anatomical lesion in the cavity, that can cause an increased risk of having miscarriages. So you would want to do kind of a full um, uh, ultrasound and um, either a uh, 3D ultrasound or a MRI of the uterus to make sure that there is no um, also congenital anomalies of the uterus. So kind of like abnormally shaped uterine uh, cavities that you were born with that you would never know about, but it can present with um, increased risk of miscarriages. Um, so probably the, the uterine anatomy would form your biggest um, largest component of, of people that have something wrong with them when they present with that history of recurrent miscarriages. The other part is an autoimmune profile. So um, there's a condition called the antiphospholipid syndrome, but basically it's looking at the, the mom's um, kind of autoimmune status. And so patients that have recurrent miscarriages, we hypothesize that maybe their immune system is a little bit overactive and it's kind of attacking the, the fetus that's trying to grow and develop and maybe that's the cause for the miscarriage. Um, so those are the two most common causes. Um, and then you would check some basic hormones like your thyroid and, and prolactin specifically because those, if we're abnormal, could cause recurrent or a higher risk of miscarriages. And then lastly, there's some um, genetic workup for both mom and father because they could have a simple problem where there's kind of a mismatch of chromosomes that they would never know about and they lead a completely normal life, but it can give them an increased chance of having a miscarriage. Hmm. So you mentioned the, the, unfortunate, oh, sorry. the unfortunate part with it is that even though it's a pretty expansive um, workup, um, about 60% of patients will be unknown and, and have nothing wrong with them from the testing. Um, and so that's just that, and that is probably just related to, once again, that the most common causes of these miscarriages that that couple has had is just because the embryo was abnormal. Mm, I see. So you mentioned fibroids. Do all fibroids affect fertility or just some? Just some, and probably the minority. Um, so oh, okay. fibroids are extremely common in nature. Um, about 30 to 40% of women will have them in their 30s and 40s. Um, there's a little bit of a higher incidence in women of African-American descent, which we don't know why, but we've definitely seen that. Um, and so given they are so common, you obviously don't get worried. I don't get worried when I hear a woman that has fibroids, but it just needs a little bit more of an evaluation. And so these fibroids are benign, meaning largely not cancerous tumors. Um, in about uh, the cancer rate of these tumors are is really in about one in six hundred fifty on the low side to one in or on the high side to one in a thousand. Um, and uh, Fibroids basically are differentiate by their size, but more importantly, by their location. And so that's where the risk of miscarriages comes in. Um, if a fibroid is in the cavity of the uterus, 
absolutely can be a link to miscarriages, trouble conceiving, uh, difficulty conceiving, and kind of abnormal bleeding. So heavy periods or irregular periods. Um, the fibroids that are in the muscle, if they are very close to the cavity and of a larger size, those can also affect the ability of a woman to conceive. But the fibroids that are in the muscle that are very small or the fibroids of any size that are kind of outside of the uterus really have no impact on a woman's fertility. You mentioned periods. Now you're going perfectly into my questions here. <laughs> it's like we rehearsed, right? I know it is. I know. Uh, so are regular periods an indicator of fertility? Very good question. Um, so what I didn't mention actually in that definition that we started at was that we called infertility kind of the trouble or difficulty not having success after trying for a year. But that definition also means that you have to have, it's only in women, applies to women with regular monthly menstrual cycles. Um, and so therefore, if a woman has irregular menstrual cycles, whether she's trying to conceive or not, and depending on how long they've been try trying, they should actually, it's recommended to seek an evaluation right away. Now that could be with their OBGYN, their primary care doctor, their internist, or commonly what I would, sometimes they'll come to us right away. So, um, Irregular menstrual cycles always needs an evaluation right away. I would not wait six months, a year, or at any time um, if that couple was trying to conceive and that woman was having irregular cycles. And then I guess, what exactly does that mean, an irregular cycle? There is somewhat of some cycle variability that's normal in nature, but the regular menstrual cycles are um, a woman who has cycles every 24 to 35 days. And, you know, women kind of say that our cycles can be like clockwork every 28 days, but it's okay if it varies by two to three days on each side. And that type of month to month variability is okay. But what that means clinically when somebody is having this, this regular monthly menstrual cycle is that they're ovulating every month at a specific time also. Um, and so therefore, if they're ovulating, then they're releasing an egg and there's a chance of conceiving, obviously. And also when it's at a regular defined time, a woman can use kind of ovulation kits, those pee sticks, um, or they can even just use menstrual apps and they'll know when they are ovulating. And obviously timing is very important uh, in nature to, to get pregnant, so they're able to do that. When a woman is having irregular menstrual cycles, so let's say she has a period one month and then doesn't get another one for two or three months, and then she bleeds for like a longer, like two weeks to next month, that type of irregularity is often insinuated with them not even ovulating at all. So that couple has no way of timing um, intercourse properly. Um, and also if they're not releasing an egg, then, then they could be having intercourse multiple times a day or once a week, it doesn't matter. If you're not releasing an egg, then there's no chance of getting pregnant. So that's why um, in women that have these this cycle irregularity, it's recommended to figure out exactly why that's going on first, um, because it would be nearly, not, not impossible, but much more difficult to conceive in nature. Mm, interesting. I've also heard the luteal phase is the one after you ovulate, right? Correct. So then is that phase, is it especially important for it to be around 14 days? I remember reading that somewhere, that if it's too short, that can be a problem? Correct. So if you're kind of looking at the menstrual cycle, the first part of it is called the proliferative phase, which is where basically of the eggs that a woman brings to that cycle, one will get selected to grow, grow, and grow, and then eventually ovulate. That, that part of the cycle can vary a little bit. But after ovulation is, as you mentioned, the luteal phase, and that generally lasts 14 days in patients. Um, even as a woman ages, the cycle, the whole length of the cycle will shorten, but it's actually more the proliferative phase that shortens because they ovulate earlier, but their luteal phase stays the same at 12 to 14 days. Um, definitely, I would say if someone is doing adequate kind of monitoring of their cycle and they know when they're ovulating by ovulation kits and, they, and that they're um, luteal phase is very short, like less than 12 days. So maybe 10 days or nine days, that would be abnormal. And um, it could be just because they're not making enough progesterone um, and that would need an evaluation and definitely could be treated. So short luteal phases do happen, um, but not as common as, as I think we read, but, but definitely if that was, was noticed in a woman's um, kind of when they're starting to track their cycles, I would, I would definitely get an evaluation for that. Yeah. Speaking of tracking cycles, I feel like these phone apps are so helpful now and you just get to learn about your body so much more. I mean, I really had no idea what was going on 
with myself and my own cycle until I got one of these apps. And that was, I think, in my late 20s. So it's kind of sad. I mean, hopefully now teenage girls are getting them and they're learning more about themselves. But I think it's kind of startling how little I knew for the majority of my life. 100%. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think 98, if not 99% of the of the couples that come in, a woman will have so much information about their kind of ovulation, about how they feel, about their cycles, and they'll bring out these kind of charts of, you know, exactly knowing when they're going to ovulate. And it's great because it's giving just women more information about their own body. Um, and obviously a woman knows their body better than, than anyone, no matter what we can do from the, from the medical side. So yeah, I think it's given, it's given women a lot of kind of autonomy and, 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 and knowledge about their own self. For sure. Is pelvic pain ever normal during a period? And does that at all point to infertility? Pelvic pain, and I guess kind of pain during a woman's menstrual cycle, which is the medical term is called dysmenorrhea or painful menses. That's obviously very common, and and and, and women can have painful menses, um, and and that cannot be associated with fertility. However, one of the most common symptoms or common common conditions that can relate to a woman's fertility is endometriosis. Um, And the classic signs of endometriosis are really severely painful periods. Um, uh, So dysmenorrhea, um, and then we kind of call it the classic four Ds, which is dysmenorrhea, dysuria, painful urination during a woman's menstrual cycle, dyskesia or painful uh, bowel movements, and lastly, dyspareunia, which is pain with intercourse. So, you know, when you start to see more of these signals or that someone's um, the amount of pain that a woman is having in her menstrual cycle, if it's not just kind of on day one and they don't need to take any medication for it, or it's definitely completely resolved with kind of Midol or ibuprofen or Tylenol, but it's something more severe, then you're going to start thinking more about endometriosis. Um, And endometriosis also is something that presents um, generally in a woman's earlier reproductive life. So kind of their late teens, early 20s. It's not something that if a woman comes in in her upper 30s and all of a sudden is having painful periods, I really wouldn't go to endometriosis right away. Mm, Okay. And then endometriosis can have an impact on fertility? It can, absolutely. Um, so um, really, it, it does uh, have a, an impact on a woman's ability to conceive in nature um, or with kind of less aggressive fertility treatment. The good thing is, is that if that couple even needs to get to something like in vitro um, fertilization or IVF, um, there now is no negative, much less of a negative effect of endometriosis at that point. Um, but, you know, endometriosis is a huge bag where um, about 10 to 15% of all women will have it. Um, but in couples that are having trouble conceiving, we see it at an incidence of about 35 to 45%. So, you know, basically in any couple that comes in, part of our evaluation and history taking is really focused on what is my suspicion of them having endometriosis. But even in patients that aren't that symptomatic, we kind of have to think about it in the back of our head. Um, The other kind of negative of it is that there's not a good screening or there's not good non-invasive testing for endometriosis. So, you know, you ask the right questions and try and elucidate that from their history. You look at their family history because if a first degree relative like mother or sister has it, then they have a higher risk of having it. Um, But uh, there's no blood test for it. Often ultrasounds can't pick it up. A CT scan, MRI can't pick it up. So the only way of truly diagnosing it is by a laparoscopy or, or a surgery. So you kind of have to weigh the risks and the benefits of doing the surgery um, and establishing the diagnosis or just um, kind of what your clinical suspicion is. But it definitely is something that's very common in, in, in all of the patients that, that we're seeing. Hmm. Um, is infertility at all inherited? For example, like if somebody's mother had issues with getting pregnant, is it more likely that that woman's daughter would also? Um, There probably is some component of a familial kind of inheritance, but nothing that we know of of genes that are associated with it. It also depends on kind of what the cause of that couple's infertility was. So if we're speaking of the mother and and, and, uh, the patient's mother and, and, and her father, if they had trouble, you know, 50% 50% is related to the male, 50% is related to the female, and some female causes, and there's a lot of different female and male causes in, in, in those two genders. So it kind of depends on what the cause of it was. Um, we were just talk, hinting about endometriosis. So if a mother has known endometriosis and then 
um, the daughter who's now seeing us is, is having trouble and um, likely has some component of endometriosis, then I would say that's familial related. But um, there's other causes like polyps and other things and um, that, that are not necessarily passed down from generations. I see. So what are some of the causes of male infertility? Um, so the male testing, like I said, so male kind of diagnostic testing is, is either fortunately or unfortunately much easier than all the testing that the, the female has to go through because there's just less things that we have to check. But that being said, it's really just a semen analysis um, uh, where we look to see um, the quantity of sperm that a, that a male is producing in their ejaculate. So that's concentration, which um, normal is more than 15 million. Um, and then you look at the motility. So the percentage of sperm that are swimming well, and that normal is more than 40%. And then lastly, the morphology or kind of what the sperm look like. Um, so it's just one test on the side of a male, but just as important as all the tests that the female go through, because there truly is kind of a, a male fertility or male component of fertility relates to up to about 40 to 50 percent of cases. So I know there are a lot of medical interventions. You mentioned in vitro and IVF. Are there others beyond that? There are. Um, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I would say in vitro and IVF is is the most aggressive. Um, there's no doubt in, in, in all patients, it's going to give you the highest chance of having success, but it's also the most expensive and the most invasive. So, you know, our goal, um, and I would say that largely fertility specialists agree with, with, with our kind of mode of practice is what we want to do the least that we need to, um, to help them conceive. Um, and so other fertility treatments could include really just surgery. Let's say the couple had, you know, a problem, the woman had a problem of a fibroid in the cavity of the uterus or a big polyp. Um, that's really the only re and everything else of the workup was normal. Then we, it could just be surgical treatment. Um, and then we would let them try on their own. So surgical treatment is one. Um, if you're looking at actual kind of medications to increase their chances, um, the least aggressive treatment is um, what's called an IUI or intrauterine insemination. Um, and that can be a treatment for um, if the male's sperm is, is of good quality, but not optimal, and it can improve kind of the quality of that male sperm. So you simply kind of take the, the sperm specimen, spin it down, and it, it improves the numbers, and you just put it back into the uterus at the time that the woman did ovulate. Um, and then lastly, there's ovulation induction medication where I can kind of get either a woman to ovulate with simple kind of oral medications um, if she's not ovulating normally, like if she has irregular periods or if um, she's ovulating normally every month, but we just want to increase their chances to conceiving in nature. So, you know, like I said, I think generally, yes, we do have in vitro and we use that when we need to, but the overall goal is to try less aggressive approaches first if the the whole prognosis of the couple is overall reassuring. I see. And then what about, are there any diet or lifestyle accommodations men and women can make? I don't know if they're different for men and women, but to try to optimize fertility? Absolutely. You know, I think there's a lot of lifestyle factors. Um, the correct answer, and there's a lot of research that's going into it. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that gets posted on just not only social media um, and, and just um, in the public in general, like things like pineapple and, and that, that, you know, so there's different kind of fads that go through as far as specific diets or supplements that can make a big difference. The, the truth that we know right now is probably in the boring answer, which is just a very general healthy lifestyle. So that includes kind of moderate exercise, obviously a healthy uh, BMI and weight, not too high um, in the obese category and not too low in the kind of severely malnourished category. So a healthy weight, um, exercise, and then a very well-balanced diet. So high protein, good carbs, and then low fat and low bad carbs um, and fruits and vegetables. And so having that kind of full comprehensive health is really the best that we can do. Um, that has been proven over and over again, as far as maximizing somebody's chance of, of conceiving. What about in terms of caffeine and alcohol or medication? Do those things also affect fertility? So some medications can. Um, uh, so definitely, I think if a couple is trying to conceive or not preventing pregnancy, then they should be aware of the medications that they're on. Um, if they uh, to, to see if they do affect their fertility, or even more importantly, if they could be what's called a teratogen, which means that it could lead to a baby with some type of abnormalities. Um, so definitely you want to be aware of the medications that you're on. Um, and then um, lastly, as far as um, kind of supplements and things like that, um, just prenatal vitamins um, and, and those kind of 
And then are caffeine and alcohol factors? Um, so caffeine has been associated with um, a, an excessive amount of caffeine has been associated with, with recurrent miscarriages. We're not sure exactly how this is happening or the, the mechanism behind it, but we've seen it. And so that limit of caffeine, which we generally recommend is anywhere from about above 200 milligrams per day, which is about one to two cups. So even in pregnancy, um, you can have some caffeine. It's not like you need to cut it completely out, but I wouldn't have it too excessive. So, you know, I usually let my patients have about, I would say one cup per day is totally safe. And um, if rarely they need that second cup a day, then that's also fine. Oh, okay. And then alcohol probably just in general. In general, yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think you need to be over, you know, I, you know, this, the fertility is a journey for everybody. And I think the less things that we have, you, you want that journey to be as comfortable as you can. You obviously don't want to be doing things that are really going to affect your chances, but you also don't want to just change your whole lifestyle and, and then make it much more of an unpleasant um, experience. So, you know, uh, alcohol is okay in moderation, definitely not too excessive, but obviously after a woman ovulates where now the embryo is developing. So that kind of luteal phase, that second half of a woman's cycle, I would at that point then, you know, um, avoid alcohol. Um, definitely smoking is probably one of the biggest negative effects for both male and female that has been proven in multiple different areas of a, of a male and female fertility. So that would be kind of a big no-no. Mm, okay. I'm wondering now that weed is becoming legalized in many states, does that have any impact on fertility? Do you know? Are there any studies with that or not yet? There are. Um, so and the, the jury is still kind of out, to be honest. Um, we know excessive marijuana intake and even obviously more higher aggressive like recreational drugs, those are opioid antagonists. And so there's opioid receptors at the, um, in, the, in the part of the brain that controls um, activating the ovaries to ovulate and controls activating the testicles to produce sperm. So that pathway definitely exists and we know about it. And that's why in people that are doing kind of excessive um, use of marijuana or even, God forbid, kind of more higher aggressive recreational drugs, they, they will have problems with their fertility. Um, uh, as far as kind of the amount of marijuana that's okay, um, that is what I mean kind of by the jury still out. So some studies have shown that just kind of a moderate use of marijuana, marijuana of about kind of up to, you know, maybe once a week has no impact on, on a couple's ability to conceive. Um, so I would say in moderation is, is okay. And then, so the caffeine and all the lifestyle changes, so those should be for both men and women? Yeah, most most of this data comes from uh, the female side just because it's been studied on that, but, but definitely um, the things that have been looked at specifically at males, not so much caffeine, but um, obviously tobacco um, and marijuana and alcohol have. I feel like men always get off the hook because <laughs> I, I, I will, I will tell you that definitely when we, when, you know, when the couple comes in and we talk about the diagnostic testing that we're going to do, um, there's a little bit of animosity between the two as they leave because <laughs> the male job's a little bit easier. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> For sure. Real quick. I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. ThriveMarket is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. So maybe we've already touched on some, but what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions flying around out there about infertility? Um, I would say one of the biggest misconceptions is um, the difference between actively a couple actively trying to conceive versus just having regular intercourse and not preventing pregnancy. Um, and that's probably what I see the most. And, and to be honest, in a from a fertility standpoint, 
I treat those equally. So um, if a couple has been actively trying, like using apps and ovulation kits, obviously that gives you more information um, and it's helpful to know. But if that couple has been not preventing pregnancy and just kind of having, obviously, and then not scheduling things, but having reg relatively regular intercourse, that's just as meaningful as actively trying. So I would count that whole period as far as a, a time when there was the ability to achieve a pregnancy and they did it. Um, so, um, and the reason for that is because sperm lasts for up to about five days um, and you want that sperm to be there before a woman ovulates. So even when you're not mapping your cycle, um, if you're having intercourse really every, you know, twice, twice a week, you are inherently timing things correctly. So I think one misconception is from couples is that, well, you know, I haven't been preventing pregnancy for, you know, really since our marriage, but um, I've only been actively trying for the last year. And, and really those two are the same. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Any other misconceptions or do we kind of touch on everything? Uh, you know, I think maybe there is a little bit of a misconception on the side of what we do as specialists. Um, you know, I think obviously the the biggest, you know, the techniques of IVF and in vitro have, have gotten a lot of um, natural attention, absolutely, for, for how much progress they've made since the first IVF baby being born in 1978. But I think there is a mis sometimes a misconception on the side of couples that that's the only thing we do. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I think it depends on the provider. But like I said, our goal is to kind of always is, is to, to help them in conceiving in the, in the least aggressive, most natural way possible. And sometimes, like I said, that could include um, just surgery or, you know, less aggressive treatment like some oral tablets, uh, ovulation induction with an IUI. So it doesn't necessarily always need to mean IVF. And I think sometimes patients are a little bit hesitant about going to see a specialist because they think that, you know, that means that they have to do IVF. And that's obviously more, more of a financial, emotional and time investment. And, and it really doesn't need to be like that. And, and most, patients, most patients won't start with IVF and will start with less aggressive approaches. Yeah, I think it's good you cleared that up because I, I even thought that. I thought that you go to a fertility specialist if you want in vitro or IVF. I didn't really know all the other things you talked about. And yeah, yeah I think it's good for people to learn that. Uh, you know, I think, I think there's sometimes a misconception on the side of males that it's really not their fault and it's only, uh, or not necessarily fault, but it's more the side of a female of why we can't get pregnant. And like I said, definitely yeah. the testing <laughs> is more on the side of, there's, there's more tests and more things that you have to check on the side of a female for her reproductive system for a pregnancy to happen. Um, so the testing is much easier on the side of a male and just the semen analysis, but they really truly do, um, you know, partake in a, in, in a couple's inability to conceive up to about 50% of cases. So, you know, they are just as important and just as liable as, as everybody. Right. One thing, actually, you touched on it, but I forgot to follow up. In terms of, you mentioned prenatal vitamins, but are there other supplements that you know that can help with conceiving? Absolutely. So prenatal is the most important and, and, and you want to have at least about 400 micrograms per day of folic acid. That's probably the most important one because that prevents neural tube defects. And, and so I say if a couple is trying or not preventing, they should really be on a, pre, a general generic prenatal vitamin because um, you want that amount of folic acid even prior to getting pregnant. Now, the good thing is, is that even if you get pregnant, it's still, and you're not on prenatal vitamins, nothing to worry about because most people get enough folic acid or folate from their diet, which includes like leafy green vegetables, um, citrus, legumes, lentils, those kind of things. Um, so prenatals is probably the most important. Um, and then I would really say those other kind of natural lifestyle factors that we talk about, talked about of, you know, health, exercise, well-balanced diet, those are going to be the most important. Um, uh, there can be some supplements like CoQ10, um, uh, vitamin D would actually be an important one, I would say, that has been shown to improve both male and female. So uh, making sure our vitamin D levels are normal. Um, and then uh, CoQ10 is kind of an enzyme or an antioxidant that can also help with kind of our general health, but has had some data showing improvements in fertility. Hmm. What would you say is your most basic advice for somebody who's having fertility issues? I would say first, just take what I just did right there. Answering the question would be take a dig, take a big deep breath. Um, it's a journey for everybody. Um, and without going into too much detail, my wife will probably get angry, but we've got two children <laughs> and have been fortunate enough to, to not need any fertility treatment for them. But our first one took eight months and, um, you know, and we had a chemical pregnancy in that mix. Um, 
so kind of an early pregnancy loss. Um, but, you know, it was even though I knew all of this data, that was obviously the first time that we were now I was truly in, involved in it personally. And um, it was it was it was it was stressful. You know, every month you, you kind of change your life. A woman changes kind of their overall life and prepares for two weeks and then we ovulate and then you wait for two weeks. And that's probably the longest two weeks of everyone's life, you know? Um, and I would remember coming home and seeing multiple urine pregnancy tests in the, in the trash. Um, and you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking because it also takes month by month, you know, it's not something that's a quick fix. So I would like to tell everybody is first and foremost, take a big deep breath. Don't, you know, maximize, you want to maximize your fertility with normal lifestyle factors, but I also wouldn't recommend changing every single thing because it can take time. And, you know, the majority of couples take about six months to conceive. So it doesn't happen on the first time. And I wouldn't get worried if it doesn't happen on the first time. So my, I guess my biggest would be just take a deep breath, um, try and enjoy the ride as much as you can. Um, and then, you know, lastly would be if it hasn't happened after a certain point of time, don't wait too long and then just go to see somebody and, and remember that going to see somebody doesn't necessarily mean that anything is wrong, but it's just knowing you want to, you want to get those things checked out. Yeah. yeah. When you said the take a deep breath part, it made me think, do you know if there's any link between chronic stress and infertility? There is. Yeah. So, um, as we, we kind of talked about that, those opioid receptors are on the, on the part of the brain, the hypothalamus or the pituitary that, that sends the signals to, um, either the testicles or the ovaries, but there's also stress receptors there also. Um, and, uh, whether it's good or bad, I'm not sure, but, um, the reproductive access, hormonal access and system is the most sensitive endocrine system in the body. So often when there are massive stress induced events, like when a family member passes away or, you know, a woman goes off to college or travels across the country or whatever, um, that those can cause somewhat of menstrual irregularities. And that's because during that stressful time, a woman may not ovulate as regularly and therefore they have irregular periods. Now it's something short lived that when they kind of now come accustomed to it, then the regular normal reproductive function will, 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 um, will resume, but, um, stress is definitely involved with it. Um, uh, so I think, you know, if there's any ways that we can take care of our couple's stress, obviously in a healthy manner, not by drinking too much or doing doing uh, drugs, but um, if there's anything that we can do to naturally reduce that stress, um, whether it be cooking, whether it be exercising, whether it be reading a book, watching a movie, or, you know, acupuncture, um, any of these other kind of healthy ways to reduce a couple's stress can only maximize and, and help their their chance of conceiving. Have you seen people have success with acupuncture? Absolutely. And it's becoming more and more common. Um, and, you know, what I tell kind of most of my patients is that, you know, they are um, that kind of Eastern medicine combined with Western medicine often just improves things um, and, and gives them a better chance. So it's definitely we're starting to see it more and more in our patients. Um, and um I think it's great if it makes the patient feel better, you know, but specifically acupuncture, if they hate every minute of it and can't do, can't tolerate any of the, the treatment, then it's really not helping them. But that, that naturopathic physician will have many other tools outside of acupuncture, which is the overall goal of just kind of um, improving their reproductive health and their mental health and reducing their stress. So, you know, um, in, in, if we can do anything to reduce our stress, I think it can only help. Definitely. Yeah. You definitely don't want acupuncture or some of the treatment to become a, another stressor that. Correct. Absolutely. And, you know, there's been some patients that, you know, are, are battling through the acupuncture um, and thinking that that's going to be kind of the game changer and now let them get pregnant either with an IUI or in nature or with IVF. Um, but um, and to those patients, I would say probably acupuncture is not the best, but once again, there's many other different treatments that a naturopathic physician can offer. Um, in the patients that do enjoy the acupuncture and it reduces their stress, then I would absolutely um, continue with it. And so, you know, there's a lot of studies now looking at acupuncture and the ability and improving pregnancy rates. Um, and so sometimes people will do acupuncture right before IVF um, or even on the day that we actually put the embryo back. Um, so, you know, that I think is still up to judgment if it has to be done on that day, but there's no doubt that I think having them involved in, in, a, in a couple's care, if they need it from a, from a stress and anxiety perspective can only help. 
It's cool to hear you say that. I interviewed, I've done acupuncture. Um, I haven't done it since I've moved to California, but I used to do it regularly in New York City. Uh-huh. And I interviewed my former acupuncturist a few episodes ago. Um, uh-huh. She was saying one of her favorite things about the future of medicine is how Eastern and Western are combining and more physicians are recommending that their patients seek her treatment and vice versa. And so it's cool to hear you say that because, you know, she was pro working with you guys. And it's nice that, you know, you're open to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think these kind of the, the herbal remedies and the, as you call it, kind of the, the, or as we call it, the Eastern medicine, you know, it, it may not have the strong studies and the literature backing it a lot of times, but it does have the backing of test of time, you know? And so a lot of these things have been going on for a long time and, and not causing any negative effects. Um, and therefore, um, at least not hurting and, and maybe in large case helping. So, you know, I think the truth is kind of the, the approach of, of both and, and a healthy dose of both and somewhere in the middle. For sure. Well, the final question I ask all guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? You know, I would say, I think, I think investment to me symbolizes something long-term um, or something permanent. Um, and so if you combine that with health, I would say maybe the health investment or my health investment or anybody's is, is really, truly doing something for the long term and changing their overall lifestyle rather than doing like a quick two month keto diet or a quick whole 30 and looking at some kind of short term goal of losing this many pounds in that short period of time. So I would say me, it makes the, the, the health investment means that it's kind of an overall change of our lifestyle in a, in a healthy way that we continue, that we, we hope to, to manage for the rest of our life. Right. And then that healthy lifestyle would support fertility. It would, along with many other things, but fertility is one of them for sure. For sure. So what's the best place for listeners to find and follow you? Um, let's see. So I do have an Instagram, which is pretty new, um, but that is a doc, all lowercase Dr. Vinay Ganala. Um, uh, so the Instagram would be one. Um, secondarily is my, my, uh, the company that I work with, my mom and, and, and our um, fertility center is called Southwest Fertility Center. Um, and we're in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and so we have our own kind of Facebook page, obviously, uh, and our website is southwestfertilitycenter.com. Um, so I would say those are probably the three avenues um, best to, to follow. Great. And I'll put links to all of those in the show notes so people can easily click and find you. Yeah. You know, we have just because fertility is now becoming more and more common and that there's centers all around the the world and the nation. um, You know, I think every fertility center, not only just us, but we have a lot of patients coming from California, Washington, um, Las Vegas, not only the Southwest, but a couple from the East Coast as well. And so um, because there are so many centers around, there's often... um, treatment that you can still have for couples, even when they don't live in your city or in your state. Mm, Good to know. Well, thank you for sharing everything today. You, I mean, jam-packed episode here with a lot of good info. So truly appreciate your time and can't wait to stay connected on social media. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.